I felt very uncomfortable and I told her that. She said, great, it should feel uncomfortable. That means you're doing it right. And <laughs> again, the indoctrination that leads up to this point makes me ripe to agree, okay, it's supposed to feel this way. It's supposed to feel uncomfortable in my body. That I'm pushing through that on purpose. That's what this whole thing's about. They told her that she was being controlling, that she needed to let go and trust the process. And for 12 years, Sarah Edmondson did what she was taught to do by people she deeply trusted. So she ignored the red flags, which Sarah says were there from day one of her training with ESP, otherwise known as Executive Success Programs. The programs were marketed as personal development by its parent company, Nexium. But behind closed doors, its leader and mastermind, Keith Ranieri, was using his knowledge of mind control to prey upon women and girls and turn them in to sex slaves. Everyone is susceptible if they are in the right emotional situation at the you know a crossroads or a low point in life and they meet the right person that they trust that can invite them to you know a cocktail hour or a reading group or a, a bible study something that is in line with that person's values Today on the show Sarah Edmondson one of the brave victims and whistleblowers of the Nexium cult shares her intimate knowledge about how an otherwise bright, educated woman becomes indoctrinated into a cult. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Sarah grew up in Vancouver, Canada. An only child of two socially and politically active parents, who had very strong values of making the world a better place. They took her to peace rallies and taught her the importance of making a difference, which sparked a desire inside young Sarah to tackle hard problems and big ideas. I remember very clearly being in bed at night and like wishing for world peace or anytime I had like a candle to blow out. That was something that really drove me, feeling concerned about the world and also concerned for myself. Like, I guess I really was craving belonging at a core level. Yeah, craving connection, belonging, while also dreaming, having big mm -hmm. dreams about the impact you could make in the world. Yeah. Well, my parents separated when I was quite young, and I remember feeling very, very lonely being an only child as well to, uh, until my dad remarried later and always searching for like that you know that best friend or to be more popular I definitely was not popular but also I was bullied and you know I was a nerd but I think inside I also yearned for big things so today we are going to talk about Nexium. What did your life look like at that point before you were introduced to Nexium? Well, similar to what I was just saying, I, I had those same wishes and yearnings, but at that point I probably would have called it community, specifically meaning. I was an actor, and ironically I'd chosen being an actor because I thought that naively that I could become famous and then I could use my fame to be involved with various causes and have a voice. I didn't particularly have a message. I just thought that would be a good platform because I saw that happening in the world. And I definitely hadn't achieved that, and nor did I find the meaning I was hoping from being an actor. I was in a relationship at the time that I was struggling with, but also I think big picture, I had just started a bit of a spiritual journey having read books like The Celestine Prophecy and The Artist's Way. And my boyfriend at the time got invited to a film festival called the Spiritual Cinema Circle Festival at Sea. And it was with a bunch of filmmakers that were also spiritual. And I felt that this would be a good opportunity to go and connect with other people in the arts and media and to really figure out what my actual purpose was. Because I decided that 
perhaps acting was not my purpose. So I was really seeking at a high level. (laughs) So as you said, you're an actress, you're seeking. You find yourself on this retreat, which is on a cruise ship with other artists and seekers, you know, people in the arts on, on their own spiritual paths. And the story of Nexium really begins with Nexium being introduced to you. And I know you you get seated at dinner next to a director who at that point had made a film that was well known, which leads to, I think, often immediate credibility and intrigue. Tell me about that conversation and who he was and the interest that was sparked in you that night. Yeah, this this conversation definitely changed the trajectory of my life. The precursor to that is I had seen his movie, What the Bleep Do We Know?, which at the time in the early 2000s was groundbreaking. For those that remember the movie, it really did shift a collective consciousness at a level that no documentary had ever done up until that point. And so to be seated with him, I felt since I had put it to the universe that I was looking for my purpose, to be seated with him didn't feel like just a coincidence. It felt like it was meant to be. And he had just finished a 16-day training with Nexium and was thoroughly hyped up about it, a feeling I would later learn to be this very much sort of proselytizing fervor, which I totally had the same later. He noticed that I was coughing. I had this really bad cough, even though I was excited to be on this cruise. I was very sick. And he asked me a number of questions, which I would later find out what was called rational inquiry, which was the methodology that Nexium used to kind of get to the root of issues those series of questions helped me to have an aha, an epiphany that I was subconsciously sick, making myself sick to get my boyfriend's attention, something that I had done ever since I was a little kid to get my mother's attention. Anyway, that aha led to a conversation, a further conversation, a friendship, and he eventually invited my boyfriend and I to come and also attend a training to which I immediately said yes and didn't research, just followed my intuition that I should be doing this totally unresearched training with a a virtual stranger, really, but ultimately somebody I really trusted. And that was something I would learn is a core tenet of how to bring people into such things or to recruit is that it's leveraged trust. So even though I didn't know Mark that well, I really trusted him. I, In fact, I looked up to him very much, and I wanted to work with him, and I wanted to make movies like him. So it was an easy jump for me at the time. Yeah, and it's for all the reasons you said. You trust him. You look up to him. He gives you this aha moment, right? Oh, my gosh, that makes sense. A new discovery about yourself, whether it's true or not. And the sell, I imagine, on his part is... I've had all this personal growth and impact as a result of this group I'm a part of, Nexium. So come check it out. What you do, as you said, tell me about your first meeting and exposure to Nexium. So it just happened that the very first ever training was being produced in Vancouver, where I lived. We went. And really, like I said, I hadn't researched, so I didn't really know what to expect. But in my mind, I thought I was attending like a very large sort of Tony Robbins style or, you know, arena or some a big, a big room. It turned out there was only nine people and as many, if not more coaches. It was low budget and a bit cheesy and I was not impressed. In fact, I had a lot of what I now know to be red flags, but I didn't really know what to make of it. Keep in mind, this is 2005. So this is before what we call the golden age of cult awareness with documentaries like The Vow and documentaries like Holy Hell and Going Clear and Wild Wild Country and all these documentaries that are so pervasive in this new trending era. And in my mind, I felt like things were definitely weird, but I didn't understand that my instinct was really good. I really was not happy to be there from the beginning. But at the same time, I I was open and wanted to prove, well, I, want, I wanted to prove my parents wrong, who were already concerned that I was spending so much money. This was over $2,000 for a five-day training. And so I wanted to get my money's worth. It was non-refundable. So there's lots of different things going on. But the most important thing that I 
I like to share with people is that the trainers very proactively did what's called preamps. And they said that we are all going to feel uncomfortable because we're here to grow and, and look at ourselves and look at our stuff, you know, our issues. And when you do that, and this is true, it's uncomfortable. And so when you get uncomfortable, people have a tendency to stuff their feelings down with food or to smoke or to flirt, but mostly to leave the urge to bolt. And they just encourage us to stick it through. And we're just talking. If we're talking about something that's uncomfortable and it's just talking, why is that a problem? You should be able to sit it through and, and we, we can work on it and make, make that issue better. So whilst that is true with many things, given some of the topics we were covering, money, self-esteem, relationships, things that are uncomfortable, there were also lots of uncomfortable feelings based on I f saw weird, strange things that I couldn't reconcile, but all of that was circumvented by me agreeing to not bolt. So I, st I stayed. Well, it's also shame-inducing, right? Because you're calling something out that you're painting as a weakness, and it's also setting the stage for people to question their intuition. Right. And it's such a manipulative tactic. It is. And I, you know, we don't get to this till later, but I think that's actually one of the most horrific things that was done to us is that our intuition was slowly dismantled because many things like that, people always ask, like, what, what was the first red flag or when did you think things were off? And I would say actually from the beginning, from day one. I mean, things definitely got worse, <laughs> but that pattern and that path was already worn in by then to also question what I was seeing. So the the program, the retreat, or the work is, mm -hmm. is five days, and the language, and it's so fascinating in doing stories and cult, how pervasive the language is, and I think how prohibitive it is for people to tell their stories after without having the vocabulary. So ESP is the Executive Success Program, which you would become a part of. What is the promise? What are they promising and, and what hole is that going to fill? What need is that going to fill for you? The big promise really is joy. Imagine a world with joy. Imagine a world where nobody nobody was petty, nobody hated each other. We wouldn't bomb each other. We would take care of each other. Humanity would be united. <laughs> this was the big promise, to evolve ourselves, to evolve our petty issues, to evolve our likes and dislikes so that we could all get along as a human team. So world peace, really, <laughs> is the big promise, but starting with ourselves. And through that was a number of other promises, such as, you know, achieving your goals and success. It was a success program, executive success programs. It wasn't called Nexium at the time. And that was something that really appealed to me. I felt like I had found a path and a tool set and the secret book to understanding life and myself and others. I was just as zealous and proselytizing as Mark had been with me. In fact, I told everybody who'd listen about it. <laughs> And there was a certain credibility factor in the community that was growing. I mean, at its height, there was over 700 members, like a former U.S. Attorney General, actors, actresses like Linda Evans, Keith, the leader of Nexium, the Dalai Lama had written the foreword to his book. So that part makes sense to me that there's a certain comfort you know, other people are doing this who are credible, successful people. There's a safety in that often when you look around and you're comforted by other people and the credibility of those people. Absolutely. That's something that kept my doubts in place many times over the years. Not And not just the what they called VIPs or the famous people, but what would become my community and really great, wonderful people, some of whom I still call dear friends to this day. So... At the helm is a man named Keith Ranieri. You know, in preparing for this interview, I was doing some research on cults. And the Webster Dictionary says, the group is elitist, claiming a special status for itself, its leaders, and its members. The leader is considered the Messiah, a special being, an avatar. Or the group and the leader is on a special mission to save humanity. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't fit 
<laughs> everything that you have described or will describe in this interview. Yeah. So tell me about Keith and meeting him and sort of the the symbol and energy around him in the program. By the time I'd met him, I had done the five-day, and then I'd gone to Albany and done the 11-day. Normally, he didn't meet anyone until they finished the 16-day. I don't remember when in that time I met him, but I'd done a, enough curriculum to have him on a pedestal in my mind. After every class, we would say, thank you, Vanguard. So we called him Vanguard, which, again, was a red flag. But if you question that, they'd say, but why is that weird? Vanguard just means leader of a philosophical movement, which he is. So <laughs> if you don't like that, that means you have issues with authority and you can go work on that with your coach or whatever. So that's that was also the beginning of the gaslighting. Then any, any discomfort, any confusion or any problem with anything was always flipped back to be a problem with you, which you'd learn to avoid. So then you'd learn to, I learned to, not voice concerns because I didn't want to go under that scrutiny. So I go, okay, Vanguard, sure. So I kind of shelved that in the back of my mind, which is a metaphor I love to use now because this is what happens. We we have these things that don't quite make sense, we don't like, but you're going along with it to a degree and you put it on a shelf and that shelf gets piled up with all sorts of such things and it eventually breaks, which we'll get to later. But one of the things I shelved right at the beginning was that, I mean, I, I respected what he had built. I really liked the curriculum and found that it helped me a lot, which it did. And that's true, but that wasn't stuff he created as he claimed. It was stuff he'd stolen from other places, but I didn't find that out till later. So I respected him. But when I met him, I was definitely underwhelmed by his presentation. If, you, if you've seen the vow, you'll see what he looked like in the early years, which is long hair. He was scruffy. He was always in like schlubby volleyball, sporty clothes. Later, they did clean up his act, give him a haircut and put him in polo shirts and nice dark jeans. But at the beginning, it was a real sort of Jesus-y vibe, like a wannabe Jesus vibe, not real Jesus vibe, not to offend any anyone out there. So Nancy had this, Nancy, who's Keith's right-hand woman, the prefect, which means head of a school, um, would always say after people had met him, which was usually in a public setting, they'd say, wasn't he amazing? What did everybody think? And somebody would always put up their hand and say, well, I just found that he was actually kind of normal, like just a guy. And she would turn that criticism and say into this, she'd say, isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible how he can bring himself to just a the layman's level? He can just bring himself and just be in such good rapport with us that he just seems so approachable and normal, which I think is so funny now that we know what we know that he just was like, he was just a schlubby dude who happened to be good with the ladies, which is something he learned at a young age. And a con artist. And a I con mean, artist. Yeah. 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 He's I a con mean, artist. Absolutely. So you meet Keith and mm -hmm. you're in Vancouver. To some extent, you're thriving. I mean, going back in the red flags, subconsciously, my guess is you aren't thriving, but you're building community and friendships. You know, you talked about this need to belong you're building a center in Vancouver for the executive success program, which is, you know, frankly crushing it, it sounds like. And there is a structure similar to a multi-level marketing structure where you're making a lot of money with people taking these courses and the community growing. So I would imagine at that life, right, the promise of building and creating success and making a positive impact in the world is all happening, right? Uh, mm -hmm. or, or you feel that it is I happening. I feel like it is, yeah. You feel it is, it is in fact not, but your experience in that time is look around, it's all happening, right? Mm -hmm. And I was curious during this time because things really did look good. Were your friends and family questioning or challenging you you know, people who didn't really know too much about what I was doing, they were just seeing me going back and forth to New York and to Seattle or Tacoma, Washington, and thinking I was really into something, not really understanding, and maybe joking about like, oh, Sarah and her cult, but not really enough to like do an intervention. And also at the time, some people like my mother, she did 
talk to somebody about doing an intervention. And ultimately, her and my dad decided not to, mostly because they were like, well, she's happy. And externally, you know, there's certain markers of success that we go by in society. I was able to, you know, to buy a nicer car. I, I bought a home. I got married. I mar- met my husband, who's thankfully still my husband, and um, later had a kid with him. And, you know, all the things were lining up. So at a certain, like, you don't, people tend to not want to rock the boat. Yeah. I mean, you meet your husband, Nippy. You guys build a family. You you have these friendships. You even talk about your wedding and you and your friends had a surprise, you know, flash mob, dancing to fun music. <laughs> so it's not as if I think sometimes people visualize what it would be to be in a cult. Like you're in the middle of a desert, all dressed the same, you know, like looking down. And <laughs> that is not what your life looked like. No. No, you're right. It's not. that. Not, I think that's also, if anyone ever said that you're in a cult, that was my image. There's no robes, goat's blood, shaving of heads. And I think also, and actually Nippy and I, my husband, were just talking about this recently, that we subconsciously didn't get involved. I mean, obviously we were very committed and we loved it and it was it was my life in many ways, but I never moved to Albany. I never moved to the headquarters. I never was intimate with Keith in any way. And that kind of kept me away from the bad and the dark stuff. I think that had I made the move and like given up my home in Vancouver, which is something they were strongly encouraging me to do. If I had done that, that may have been more of a a reason for people to get involved and say, hey, you know, maybe question me a little bit. But I didn't. Well, that makes sense to me. That close proximity, right, more would have been revealed to you by virtue of the proximity. Right. One journalist described... Nexium as expensive brainwashing. <laughs> it was a business. Money was being made, certainly at the top. And people were spending. So can you talk to me about the financial piece of it? Because you're spending tens of thousands, or I don't know if not hundreds of thousands, to pay to take the next course, get up to the next level. But you're also signing people up to have the experience, and they're paying So can you speak to that piece of it, the financial, which there's a whole, there's so many levels of trauma, but I think that would be one to count as well. Absolutely. I mean, this was something that's not really comfortable for most people, recruiting. I had a big network of friends and I've always been very passionate about whatever I'm getting involved with, whether it's like I said earlier, the artist way and rallying people to do that with me or a new yoga studio or green juice or things that I'm into. I'm still that way, unfortunately. <laughs> it's just my personality type. So in that setting, I was really good at bringing people in and I got rewarded for that. And even that concept was something that I had to work on with my coach at the beginning because I would felt uncomfortable you know, getting money from my friends. And that would be reframed as, well, you're, you know, you're, you're working, you're doing a job, you're building these, which is true. I was filling trainings and that is, a, that is a paid position out in the world. If everything that we thought was true about Nexium was true, that would have been good that I got paid. I don't have a problem with that. What was a problem is that what I was selling and what I was doing was actually the opposite of what I said I was selling. Yeah. So that was the trauma at the end of my 12 years to find out that I'd been pitching Keith Raniere as a humanitarian, ethical, compassionate leader and finding out that, like you said earlier, that he's a, not only a con man, but he's, I mean, evil is, is a word that I struggle with because that was a word that was sort of discounted in Nexium. So I'm not sure how you want to frame it, but he was a very bad person and hurt a lot of people and manipulated a lot of people. And that was all going on while we were there. In fact, it had been going on before we even got there and it was all covered up. And we all underestimated the lengths to which people around him would lie. And we just assumed it was, we, we were, we were told he was celibate, which is obviously laughable now knowing what we know. So I think the layers, well, the brainwashing, the manipulation, all of these things that were happening, it appears as if they're building over time. But there were rituals and rolls and specific claps and sashes. 
Can you break that down and explain how the community is building and how people become tethered by those rituals? Sure. Um, Rules and Rituals was a class that was taught on day one of the five-day. And there was lots of things that we did that were definitely strange. And now I know are 100% red flags, but they all had meanings that would make sense as you did more curriculum. For example, we would wear a sash, and the sash was a color that was indicative of your your level. And if you were weirded out by that, they would say, have you ever done karate or been in any martial arts dojo? You wear a belt. There's white as a student, then you graduate to yellow. That was a coach. Then there was orange as a senior coach, also known as a proctor, and so on. And that just became normal. So strange things were normalized consistently and all the time. And every time a new thing was introduced, it would slowly get enmeshed into the fabric of the community to the point where we almost had our own language or, I mean, English words, but the words had a very specific meaning to our group. Things like parasite, effort strategy, persistency, even the word like dependency would have a very specific meaning in our group. And so when penance and collateral were introduced in 2011, 12, 13, in that time frame, it, again, was just something that was very normalized. People were giving collateral, doing penances for all sorts of things, and that was just part of the Nexium zeitgeist. And this collateral is something that has come up in other interviews and conversations that I have done around cults frankly, the inner conversations I had around Scientology. But using control and manipulation by essentially having blackmailing Mm -hmm. with the threat of shame and embarrassment, using that as a weapon. Yeah. For whatever reason, that just broke my heart. I'm a visual person and, and thinking of people, you know, questioning the exchange or sharing that piece of themselves or sharing something like a photo it really struck me. So can you talk to me about collateral and what types of things people were giving for collateral? And and sure. the promise, obviously, which is bullshit, is it's actually there to protect you and keep you accountable, right? Yes. And I think that's something that <laughs> I think I think Keith did study other cult leaders and looked at where people made mistakes. And I think that he saw how controlling other leaders were. And he went out of his way to make it seem like people thought of things themselves so that they were always choosing. And they even say, you, you know, you can you can leave any time. You can leave any time. We just ask you to, like, like if somebody left and had made a stink about something, they'd say, well, why don't they just go back to their lives? Why do they have to make us bad in order to leave? So if people left quietly, it was fine. But if they left loudly or or spreading any negativity, that was a problem. And the reason I say that is that he made collateral look like a choice as well. Not something that could ever be used against you, but something that you were doing for yourself, just for you. I'm putting this collateral down to make sure that I keep to my word. And that was something that your coach could hold or somebody that you trusted in the community could hold. It could be a physical thing or just a commitment. Like, if I don't do X, then my collateral is that I give this $1,000 to charity or something like that. So, to be totally honest, at this time, I had a three-year-old boy. I was kind of subconsciously pulling away from the community. I was less focused on building humanity and I wanted to build my family. And a lot of people were doing collaterals and doing penances that I I wasn't really doing. I was sort of going along with it, which I, I wasn't even aware that I was just going along with it. I was sort of cherry picking the things that I liked and not doing other things, but kind of pretending to. Like there would be these small groups they called it your conscience group, so a group that was helping you build your conscience. And if one of the people failed on whatever goal, whatever that thing that they were trying to do, whether it was doing cold calls or finishing a manuscript or losing weight, if you didn't follow through on your commitment, then you would wake up in, at two in the morning and do planks in the snow 
or something like that. So that was like a the collateral, putting down the penance as a collateral, if that makes sense. Coming up, Sarah's values are starting to shift towards the family she was building. But a secret invite from a respected friend takes Sarah to a horrifying place she could have never imagined. Stay with us. Today's episode benefits igotout.org. Their mission is to support survivors of high-demand environments who have experienced cultic, religious, or spiritual abuse to tell and share their stories, if and when it is safe to do so. The hashtag IGOTOUT and the IGOTOUT.org website are online spaces for people to heal, learn from one another, and educate the public about the harmful effects of coercive control, power over abuse, and undue influence. You can find out more information about their work and ways to get involved on their website, igotout.org. If you haven't already, I hope you will join us in the brand new All the Wiser membership community. If you love this show, this membership is for you. There are three tiers and something for everyone, starting as little as $4.99 a month. Early episode release, ad-free content, producer credit, dropping in live to recordings, Zooms with me and the team, and that's just getting started. If you want more inspiration, ideas, and wisdom in your life, this is the place to be. We want to know you on a deeper level, and we are excited for you to know us in new and different ways. To learn more, check out the link in our show notes. That is the link to our Patreon membership page, or head on over to our website, allthewiserpodcast.com. So as you said, you're starting a family, and that was so clear to me, that description of your value shifting. My guess is they're picking up on that, right? That mm-hmm. Because it sounds like you really were a star, right, growing this community in Vancouver. So you've had a baby, your priorities are shifting towards your son and Nippy, and you are asked by your friend who is higher up in the organization to join a secret society of women called DAS. What does DAS stand for? And what can you tell me about who invited you and how it was presented to you? Sure. And let me just preface this section by saying a lot of things happen in this in this time period that are very complicated to try to recap. But at this point, I just find it a little bit exciting and thrilling and weird when my best friend slash maid of honor slash therapist, not real therapist, but in this role, Lauren, Nancy's daughter, was one of the most high-ranking people in the whole company. And even though we were friends, she was also the person I went to to help me work on my issues and things I was struggling with. So I, I trusted her and she, oh, she also married Nippy and I, and she was Troy's godmother. So when she said she wanted to invite me to something, and before she could even tell me what it was, I had to put down collateral, something embarrassing that she would keep to make sure I never spoke about it, whether I said yes or no. So I had to put down collateral just to hear about the thing. And the thing I put down was a written confessional. She had me write something that would be embarrassing if it ever got out into the world. <laughs> would be embarrassing for me. So I wrote, you know, in my 20s, I did X, Y, and Z drugs, I partied, blah, blah, blah. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. She took a photo of it, sent it to somebody who wrote her back that it wasn't damaging enough. And so I had to extrapolate because I don't, I've always been kind of a good girl. I didn't have any real dark, deep, dark secrets. So she said, just make something up. 
doesn't matter if it's true or false, but if that got out, if people thought that you were, you know, I don't, I don't even remember what I, <laughs> I don't remember what I said, but it was embarrassing enough that that got approved. And that was approved to the point that she was able to invite me to DOS, which was a secret society for women, a badass bitch boot camp where we were going to uphold each other and help each other achieve our full potential and never stray from the path of growth. And it was a lifetime commitment. And had anyone else invited me from that community, I probably would have said no from there. But because I loved and trusted Lauren so much, and I in many ways almost already had that with her, that part wasn't hard. What was hard is that um, the, the, there was four parts, the lifetime commitment and a vow of obedience to her, to which point I started asking questions like, obedience for what? Like, you're going to tell me to go rob a bank and I have to say yes? Like, what, what, what am I agreeing to? She's like, no, just think about like a coaching relationship. So my whole time in Nexium, I've had a coach. I've been accountable to that person. I checked in with them every day. So again, all of those things are normalized. She's like, think of it as a heightened coaching experience. And to have Lauren coach me was incredibly exciting. So that part was easy. Then the third thing was master-slave. She was going to be my master and I was going to be her slave. Again, very weird, obviously. <laughs> That was also normalized. Well, obviously, I can't be her slave because I live in Vancouver. She lives in Albany. It's a, it was a metaphorical arrangement. It's not a real master slave. It's like a guru disciple. Okay, fine. But the thing that I had the most sticking point was on as I knew that I was going to get a tattoo. And I don't have any tattoos, partly because I've never had something that I really wanted permanently on my body. Also, I'm Jewish. You can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery with a tattoo. But a lot of reasons I have not ever gotten a tattoo. She said, don't worry, I'll work with you on that. I'll give you an EM, which is an exploration of meaning. That's the process you would do if you had an emotional reaction or a, a problem with something. You can get an EM and work through it, which was a tool that was really helpful for a lot of things. If I needed to EM conflict or a, some problem I had with somebody, that was a really good tool, but it could also be used to get you to change the meaning of something, which is something she did. It, the tattoo went from the meaning I had to the meaning that she wanted me to have, which was a commitment to my growth. I agree to those things. And then before I can actually be what they called fully collateralized, in other words, be a full member of DOS, I had to give more collateral. And so that's when she asked me to do a nude photo. And I did a nude selfie, which I gave to her. And she said it wasn't going to be seen by anyone. I found out later that wasn't true. But that was going to be something that she would hold to make sure I never spoke about it and I was committed for life into DOS. There was also, I know, these forced fake recordings oh, yes. the, asking yeah. people to speak and defame family members. Yes. So if you I believe what those. she says is true, <laughs> um, the stakes are high. Yeah, the stakes were really high. Everyone gave different things. There was a lawyer who gave a false confession about like tampering with evidence that would have ruined her career. There were people who wrote down legitimate, real family secrets that could destroy families. And yeah, it's so crazy to me because it was pitched and very clear that the reason we gave these was to make sure that we'd all stick to our commitments. And so that is using fear. <laughs> this is the basis of how blackmail works, right? If you do this, I'm going to release this. So you've talked about the master and slave language, and eventually you would move up and be a master and have a slave. There's hazing that goes involved, um, specifically with Lauren. You had to respond to her text. You know, sometimes if a minute, I mean, shit gets really strange. It feels like, you know, when you're watching a movie and the person goes back in the house and you're like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, for, for somebody who had an intuition, how do you look back and explain as the flags got bigger and bigger that that wasn't enough at that time for you to question and leave? Yeah, I mean, though... But my whole body, this even before the branding, like even when I was committing to Lauren, I didn't. She didn't invite me, and I and I didn't say yes right away. From the, the days went by. She was in Vancouver doing a training, and I 
felt very uncomfortable. And I told her that. And she said, great, it should feel uncomfortable. That means you're doing it right. <laughs> Again, the indoctrination that leads up to this point makes me ripe to agree, okay, it's supposed to feel this way. It's supposed to feel uncomfortable in my body. I'm pushing through that on purpose. That's what this whole thing's about. And also, of course, I'm asking questions. Who's involved in this? Is Keith involved in this? No. There's no men. No men at all. It's all women. Of course, I'm being lied to. And every time I ask a question, I'm met with, you're just being controlling, Sarah. You're doing your thing. You need to trust the process. So I'm in a system where I believe that the people above me know better than me, which is one of the problems that I see with cults all the time is you're giving your authority to somebody else. And that's part of the nature of the dependency, which makes that structure makes it inherent for any abuse of power to be incredibly detrimental. But this is the same example that happens in like coaching and sports where there's, you know, sexual abuse and things like that. So I am starting to question. I am starting to figure out like, and I, I don't link fully DOS with ESP and Nexium yet. I mean, obviously I know that they're all, everyone's involved, but they've told me that people outside of ESP are in DOS. So I'm thinking, okay, DOS is really not good, especially as I get more involved and they will ask for more collateral. Lauren asked for the deed to my house. At this point, I'm just going along with it. Like I had been earlier with the penance and the collateral. And I say, like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll talk to my lawyer. Not ever planning on giving her the deed to my house, obviously. That was never, I knew then that I, that wasn't going to happen and I had to figure out how to get out of it. But I, I didn't know what, that we were going to, you know, blow it up in the way that we did. I was just like, maybe I could write a letter to Nancy and Nancy can talk to Lauren about it. It wasn't until after the brand, it wasn't even the branding that woke me up. And I don't know how much you want me to go into that. I'd prefer to keep it kind of surface. I don't like re trigger myself, which still happens yes, even, of course. you know, six years later. But the the branding itself, as horrific and painful as it was, I had to smile my way through that to be a good leader. It was finding out that the symbol on my body was not what they told me it was, and it was actually Keith's initials. That, in combination with talking to Mark, if you recall the man who brought me in originally, who had just left because his wife Bonnie had left, and he and her had found out that women were part of a secret group. And part of that was being invited or being assigned the task of seducing and having sex with Keith. So up until now, I didn't know about that. I had, I had not had that assignment. But between the two of us having an open, honest conversation and, and sharing what we both knew, we were able to put the pieces together of the loose structure of what DOS really was, which was a blackmail MLM, a blackmail pyramid scheme with sex trafficking. <laughs> Do you mind, Sarah? I don't want you to have to retell the branding story. Can I just repeat back to you for context a few things about it so the listeners sure. know what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Go if, for it. Is that comfortable? Yeah, totally. Okay. Thank you. So when you mentioned the branding, you were told this was a tattoo. The circumstances of that day and the many layers of trauma. I know you guys were blindfolded. You didn't know where you were going. This was presented as a ceremony and everyone having the same tattoo. But it was, in fact, a doctor there branding you with initials without any anesthetic. Also, because of the overwhelming amount of pain and bodies moving with that, people were asked to hold down legs at the bottom and, you know, at the top. All of this presented as a ceremony for the society of women who were bound for life. So we've talked about the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual trauma, but this is a whole nother level, what you witness physically and, and the violation of your body. So as you said, the realization of what DOS truly is and you being branded is really the beginning of the unraveling. How long after that day does the chapter of this story take a big twist? I believe it was early March when I got branded and 
I'm slowly unraveling and that shelf is getting really, really, really heavy in this time. I think my conversation with Mark, the director who brought me in originally, I always say that he brought me in, but he got me out. And that conversation was really the main turning point. And he was great with me, very patient. And actually, if you if you watch The Vow, that conversation is recorded. And it's in there in that moment where he asks me a question. I don't remember the exact question, but it was something that basically, I remember the moment even in real time where I had the choice to either lie and go to Lauren and tell Lauren that Mark was onto us or to like side with Mark and tell Mark the truth. So I knew about the women's group. He didn't know about the branding. So I told him about the branding. That all came together in that final conversation. And I'm so glad that he told me and I'm so, and me telling him about the branding put a fire under his ass to, I think both of us, I mean, once we knew about the sex and he knew about the branding, we realized this was way worse than either of us could have imagined. So you decide to leave. Mark is outraged nippy with the discovery when you share with him about the branding. Appears heartbroken and in complete rage that this has been done to his wife at the same time. So the choice is to leave, which is a really brave act considering all of the threats, the collateral, and what you've seen happen to other people. And it starts with a meeting with the DEA. It gets real, (laughs) real (laughs) quick. Mm -hmm. And I know you said that was even confusing. Like, worried, am I in trouble? I've recruited people. I've been a part of it. Not the not knowing. And the the next piece of that would be now the DEA knows. So the investigative work is beginning. But there's also investigative work with the media and really exposing this group publicly. And the way you set the stage about the group of you coming together and then the journalist, and obviously I have been a journalist, holding the story and you have no idea when they're going to put it out. So they decide during, you know, based on the news and news cycles and politics and Trump, but when the Harvey Weinstein story breaks, they decide this is the time to expose Nexium. The piece comes out. It's really just about you. I mean, the other people in the interview with the group were not represented, which I think is so fascinating because there's a whole victimization thing there, which like, oh, well, if one woman said it <laughs> versus if a group is saying it. Mm-hmm. It's less potent. It's less potent. Yeah. Yeah. You must have felt so let down by that. I was because there were actually two other women who were interviewed and one of them decided at the last minute, changed her mind which is like, I get it. You're a survivor of a, like there was, I was balls to the wall. Like, let's do this. And I also was in a different position because I was a, I was a higher rank and I was a recruiter and I'd been so loud about how great Keith was. I was also on the flip side of like cleaning up my mess and fixing this needed to really own it. There was two women actually that were doing that with me and they were both interviewed. So Barry Meyer, the interviewer from New York times did interview them and could verify that what I was saying was true. But to be alone in the article in the end, one of them changed their mind. And then the other one was cut for space. They cut her for space. And I was just so mortified. So this this story blows up. I mean, you set the whole thing on fire. This is in the New York Times. It's in Vanity Fair. They are exposed on every level. Your dogged focus to get out obsession with getting out as many people as you can. And I imagine, and you talk about, there's a sense of responsibility there. If I was involved in introducing them, you know, now it's my work to get them out. Mm -hmm. And you, at the same time, are this whistleblower and this kind of heroic act of taking down an organization that had and was causing so much pain. You're also a victim and a survivor, and 
you also were once a recruiter. I think it's important that people understand that you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're saying, oh, well, she was a recruiter. She built it up. So you were selling something and somehow you should feel guilt. I think what you felt was a responsibility to the people to expose the truth and get them out. And mm-hmm. I can't remember how you articulated, but I thought it was a really smart answer to people who were pushing on that question. Thank you. I, I, thanks for reminding me. I do. It is key, and it's hard for people to look at what we see now and go, how did you not know? And I think part of it was being so far away in Vancouver and only coming in for trainings and not seeing the day-to-day of what was happening in Albany and also not having the training and having all the information that we have now, not only about cults, but specifically about Keith and who he really is. Guilt is something that's not really useful. I can feel bad. And obviously I felt not good about being, you know, my role in that, but being responsible. And ironically, this is something that I kind of learned in Nexium is understanding what my role actually was and fixing it. And for me, that meant getting everybody out, in many cases, stopping payments, which Claire tried to get me arrested for, which didn't didn't go very far with the Vancouver police. But yeah, being responsible for me meant if I was responsible for bringing somebody in, I had to get them out, get them back on their feet and help them. In some, in some cases, get help people get jobs, get people legal support, get people therapy, paid for a lot of therapy, got people a lot of cult recovery books. I'm still doing that. And on a bigger scale, I think what we're doing now is still cleaning up the mess and also making things right for myself. So I want to talk about the process of healing and rebuilding your life. And my understanding and part of this recovery work from being in a cult is deprogramming. Can you explain what that work is? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's still happening, to be honest. Um, I had a belief system before Nexium, and then I had a belief system in Nexium. Leaving Nexium meant stepping out of that belief system, but so much of my thoughts and the way that I viewed the world had been affected by this belief system, a way of operating in the world. And I had to constantly, and I'm still constantly questioning, do I believe that? Or is that something I learned there? And even if I did learn it there, is it something I want to keep? And if it is something I want to keep, for me, part of my process is figuring out where that concept came from, like out in the world. Because a lot of times people leave their religions or their course of control or whoever, whatever group they're in, and they have to throw it all out or, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. For me, I didn't really want to do that because there were so many good things that I got from the community in terms of communication. And you got your husband. My husband, <laughs> yeah, and my, my children. Like, there's so many tools and exercises. Some of them were very harmful and some of them were good, but the good ones didn't, Keith didn't create them. He was a plagiarist. (laughs) So I have spent a lot of time figuring out where that came from and reclaiming it outside of that structure. Like there's a couple of books. One of them is Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. And that book, somebody just recommended to me and I started reading it. And a lot of the exercises in there were some of my favorite exercises from some of the higher level trainings that I didn't want to let go of in terms of like connecting with people or having compassion with people or putting them in your shoes or working through reactions that you have with people and understandings, projection and things like that. So that kind of thing really helped me to um, deprogram and, and, and also seeing a cult therapist, you know, having the right kind of support. Not all therapy is good for cult survivors, especially if people survived a therapy-based group because the type of therapy they may receive might remind them too much of the type of work they did in the group, which happened to a lot of us. But a cult specialist can understand that. And I I specifically had someone who not only was a cult specialist, but really knew Nexium. 
so I didn't have to explain the ranking system and the structure and Keith and Vanguard and all the principles and the Ayn Rand stuff and all the different tentacles. Yeah. So what ultimately happened to Nexium and to Keith? Uh, yeah, so first we went to the authorities. They didn't know what to do with it. Then we went to the New York Times. When that article came out, that sparked an investigation in a different district. And long story short, after a six weeks trial and four hours of deliberation by the jury, Keith Ranieri was sentenced to 120 years in prison, plus five years probation, convicted on all counts of racketeering for a pattern of crimes, including sexual exploitation of a child, sex trafficking of women, and conspiracy to commit forced labor. Wow. Sarah, where are you in your life today? I'm in a very different place, I'd like to say. Uh, Kimmy, I'm not fully healed. I'd say that there's uh, waves of trauma and healing. I actually had the privilege of interviewing Evan Rachel Wood on our podcast, a little bit culty. And she shared with me that there's always a tunnel and it's dark, but then there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but then there might be another tunnel, but then there's another light. And that's really, when I heard her say that, I was like, that's exactly how I feel. I think I'm healed. And then something else happens. And then there's another wave of healing, another layer to it. Um, so emotionally, ups and downs, but generally I feel like I have taken control of my life. And the irony is not lost on me that I've somehow managed to turn this negative, crazy debacle into something very positive. My husband and I decided to turn the spotlight that came to us after the vow into what is now our career with our podcast and interviewing survivors and whistleblowers to try to really illuminate how these patterns of abuse are pervasive and everywhere and how people can avoid the red flags if they know what they're looking at or how to escape cults if they're in it and how to heal. And not just from cults, any, any form of abusive power. What do you hope people take away from your story? A couple things. I really hope that people understand that everybody is susceptible. People who think that they're not susceptible are the most susceptible because they don't take the time to educate themselves. I wish I'd been educated on the red flags of coercive control and cultic abuse. The other takeaway I really want people to have is that it's a wonderful time of people wanting to grow and have that growth mindset and be seekers. And it's great to want to better oneself. But the message I would have there is that you can do that in a way where you do not become dependent on a guru or an organization or a path or a way, because that's where you put yourself in a very vulnerable position and you don't need those things. And also you're not broken. You're totally enough as you are, and you can grow without feeling those feelings. You can grow feeling whole and complete and start from there. Thank you for your bravery, for your honesty, for the work that you're doing. Where can our listeners find your podcast, find your book, learn more about you and your work? Thanks, Kimmy. I have a website, sarahedmondson.com. I'm most active on Instagram. And that's, again, Sarah Edmondson, like son of Edmond with a D. We are at a little bit culty on Instagram and a little bit culty.com. And both of my websites have a list of resources. So if you're listening to this and you know somebody who's in a cult or you've been in a cult, please check out the resources there. All right. Thank you, Sarah. And we will link to everything in the show notes. So go follow Sarah and listen to her podcast, A Little Bit Culty. And I'm excited to share this with our audience. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for our show today. You can find us on All The Wiser Podcast on Instagram. And please head over to our website, allthewiserpodcast.com to learn more about and hopefully sign up for our new membership. And make sure to catch us next Wednesday for A Little Wiser. We will have psychoanalyst and cult recovery specialist Dan Shaw on the show to share more about this fascinating topic. All the Wiser is produced by Podkit Productions' very own Erica Girard. Thanks, Tara. That was our associate producer, Tara Daigle. 
Meanwhile, I'm editor-slash-composer-slash-sound designer John LaSalle. And that leaves us with... Me, Kimmy Colt. So until next time, take care of yourself and one another.